You don't see any cases where there are individual defendants, even though you may have those kind of cases which have highly serious injuries. Injuries may be as serious as some of these 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollar cases. And so really the type of case really has a lot to do with the size of the verdict. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law. Clio, web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. And LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions to professionals in a variety of industries at LexisNexis.com. Bob, I know you write a blog or two or three. Right. I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, another blog called Media Law. Well, Craig, uh, 2010 was a big year for jury verdicts in courts across the nation, from tobacco litigation to asbestos to car rollovers. Plaintiffs were big winners in the courts in a number of cases. We're going to take a look today on Lawyer to Lawyer at the Lawyers USA Top 10 Jury Verdicts of 2010. Take an in-depth look at these specific cases and get a defense attorney's perspective. So to help us do that today, we're going to be joined by two guests. Uh, first of all, our uh, first guest today is Rini Gertner. Rini is news editor at Lawyers USA. Uh, Rini first uh, joined Lawyers USA as uh, associate editor. Uh, Lawyers USA is the newspaper that was formerly known as Lawyers Weekly USA. As a matter of fact, back when it was Lawyers Weekly USA, I worked there as the editor of the paper way back when. Uh, in uh, January 2005, uh, Rini obtained a master's degree in public health from Boston University, where she studied epidemiology, health services, and health law. She became editor of Massachusetts Medical Law Report in September 2005 and news editor of Lawyers USA in January 2008. We're glad you could join us today, Rini. Well, thanks so much for having me. And Bob, our next guest is attorney Kevin J. Dunn from the law office of Sedgwick, Dieter, Moran, and Arnold, LLP, in the San Francisco office, which is my law firm. Kevin represents corporations in class actions, unfair trade practice, products liability, and other complex matters. As an active trial attorney, Mr. Dunn is a fellow in the American College of Trial Lawyers and is also a fellow in the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. He is past president of the International Association of Defense Counsel, the Association of Defense Counsel of Northern California, and Lawyers for Civil Justice. Kevin's tried many big cases involving tobacco and pharmaceutical litigation and has appeared and testified before Congress. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kevin Dunn. I'm delighted to be here and, of course, delighted with the topic you have today. It should be fascinating. Well, let's get started with uh, Rini and kind of give us a, a rundown of some of the big cases, perhaps, or talk about one of them so that we can get some input from Kevin as well. And uh, Kind of give our listeners a little bit of the idea about research that goes into compiling your list. 
sounds like a great place to start. So every year, uh, we spend the entire year here at Lawyers USA uh, paying attention throughout the year of the largest jury verdicts. Uh, just to be clear, uh, we don't look at class actions or business-to-business suits. We're looking at verdicts won by individual plaintiffs, which could include a single person, a family, or a small group of individuals involved in the same incident. And we watch them throughout the year, uh, trying to make sure we're on top of it for our regular coverage. And then at the end of the year, we compile the top 10 of those verdicts based on the amount. Uh, it's, it's an exciting thing. You know, it's something that we've been doing for, for many years, and it's, it's ongoing research. So we have to constantly be paying attention to any reported verdict, uh, hoping always that we don't miss a thing. And, and this year, uh, the verdicts are continuing sort of just to give you an overall scheme. They're, they're, they're trending up again. Uh, however, we've kind of left behind the, you know, multiple billions of dollars of verdicts that were going on in the first half of the decade, you know, after uh, the year 2000 or so. And we're looking at a top verdict this year that's a uh, really fascinating one, $505.1 million, $500 million of which was punitive damages. Uh, that verdict was to a principal in Las Vegas who developed hepatitis C a few weeks after a routine colonoscopy because there were these large vials of anesthesia medication that were being shared among various patients. And while that's pretty dangerous, uh, both the manufacturer and the distributor were continuing to allow this type of behavior, uh, even though there was the possibility of making smaller vials. It was just more expensive. So that was sort of the top verdict, and we kind of trend on down uh, just to give you sort of a general scope of the range from the $505 million verdict number one, and the tenth is a, is a tobacco verdict, an $80 million verdict, which included $72 million in punitives um, to the daughter of a, of, a lung, of a smoker who died of lung cancer. Um, after smoking for many years, and I, I suppose it's worth it's worth mentioning, although I'm sure a lot of our our listeners are aware of this. But but these verdicts uh, don't always uh, stand up under review. Uh, they can be overturned by the trial judge in some cases. They can be overturned on appeal for any number of reasons. Uh, and and uh, I don't know where these stand, and, and you may know whether some of these uh, have been reviewed. But how does how does 2010 compare, Rini, uh, to overall to the year before or, or the last couple of years before? Well, it, in terms of appeals or in terms of the overall amount of the verdicts? No, in terms of the, the trends in the verdicts. Yeah, okay. So this year, uh, the overall average uh, trends up a bit. So this year, uh, last year's average was $145 million. This year's average was just under uh, 157 million. So similar, but still a little, a little higher. However, the first four verdicts last year were all kind of in this, you know, they were the first three verdicts last year were in the 300 million some odd range. Whereas this year, the number one is 505.1 million. And then you sharply go down to 208.8 million. That being said, the lowest half of the verdicts last year were significantly lower than this year's verdicts. Uh, last year's lowest two verdicts, for example, were 65 million and 60 million, whereas this year you're looking at uh, the last two verdicts at 82 million and 80 million. Uh, one other really uh, interesting uh, interesting thing going on here, you know, it, as the year winds down, we're always assuming we already kind of have a sense of what the top 10 is going to be. And this year, two of the top 10 were in December. 
So we really do have to pay attention up to the very last moment. Well, Kevin, some of these verdicts have been pretty high. Um, let's take a look at some of them from a defense perspective. Um, the first one, Robert Inglett uh, was able to convince a jury in Nevada that um, these vials were weapons of mass infection. <laughs> well, it's interesting about the big verdict, several just general comments and then a comment about that particular verdict. You don't see any trip and falls. You don't see any automobile accidents. You don't see any cases where there are individual defendants, even though you may have those kind of cases which have highly serious injuries. Injuries may be as serious as some of these 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollar cases. And so really the type of case really has a lot to do with the size of the verdict. The second thing that I think is interesting, and, and your, your audience might think is, what, what would happen in a, in a depression, in a down economy? What do jurors do? You would think, you might think, that they would give lower verdicts, but no, mostly the jurors are angry, and they're angry at big business, and so big business carries the brunt of kind of this wealth sharing that goes on with these types of verdicts. Now, so 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 you can predict as a defense lawyer, I, I I get hired by corporate America, and I can predict for corporate America what kinds of cases are going to result in huge verdicts, and and just to list them, you can you can also you can almost say tobacco number one, but then the violence of the injury, you know, if it's an airplane crash or if it's a, a roll over a truck, that has something to do with it. The big corporate America has something to do with it, and one of the reasons why is in these punitive damages, the wealth of the defendant is an issue. In other words, if a defendant's worth $20 billion, a punitive damage verdict of 10000 isn't going to deter that person. And so when you have that kind of wealth on the other side, it leads to big verdicts because they'll the, the plaintiff's lawyers are very good at saying – how are we going to stop these people? How are we going to send a message? We're not going to stop them with $100,000. And so they come in with big verdicts. And, and and so then you see, of course, here what's happened. Now, the last case is, is, is the one you wanted to talk about. That was a $505 million verdict. And of that million dollars, only five million was for compensatory, in other words, pain, suffering, and injury. The rest, you know, 495 million was for punitive damages. One of the questions you had suggested is, is that going to stay up on appeal? And, and, and my quick answer is no. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and, and one of the reasons I say no so quickly is that the U.S. Supreme Court has said there has to be some relationship between the compensatory damages and the punitive damages. In other words, if you have a, a slip and fall and a broken toenail, you're not going to get punitive damages of $500 million. But But can you get damages of $500 million in a case where there's an outbreak of hepatitis C? And, and and to do that, you don't really necessarily look at the injury. You look at the compensatory damages, and the court has said there has to be some relationship between that $5 million compensatory and the punitive of $495 million. And it can't be whatever that number is, 100 to 1. They have the highest 
ratio they have ever upheld is nine to one, but most of them they say one to one. So this particular case in the hepatitis C, I could see the court allowing a $45 million punitive, that's nine to one, but I can't see them uh, affirming a $495 million to one. And if you look at some of the other cases in there, you'll see the ratios exceed that. And of course, the juries were angry, and the and the amount of money that the defendants had was enormous. And but but uh, emotion is not supposed to play a role, but it does. So every year you look at these things, and every year they tend to go up. Um, and it's a and it's a it's an interesting commentary on society, on and on the legal system, and fun to talk about, and, and fun to help us analyze the system which we think is so valuable to us. I wonder if we could just ask Rini, as a reporter, what, what's your perspective on the the punitive damages issue? In this case in particular, uh, what, what was it about the case, uh, do you think, that, that caused the jury to uh, award such a, such, a, such a massive, really, punitive damages award? Well, I think in this instance, it, just to be clear, it is already on appeal, so that, that isn't surprising. Um, that happens, of course, a lot with these cases. Uh, and, and this one actually set uh, a new Nevada record for uh, an award in a single case. Uh, the punitive award here is, uh, there's two reasons, and it's similar to what uh, Kevin is talking about. There's, there's sort of two motivating factors, I think. Here, uh, there was some evidence that the companies involved were motivated by profits. Uh, they were going to be making more money off selling the bigger vials and off perhaps arguably not telling the various entities that would be using them that it isn't safe to continue to use the vial. A, a defendant measuring anything. profits against risk is always a dangerous, dangerous case from a point of view of the company. So you're right on that, Rainey. Yeah, there was also here uh, knowledge, the company, evidence that the company had knowledge of almost 150 cases associated with these kinds of issues. Uh, and so there was sort of advanced knowledge that was not then given to the entity that would be using this anesthesia. Uh, and the other aspect that I think is especially interesting in this case um, and, and, and sort of caused the attorneys here to argue that the companies were motivated by profits, uh, well, that is that factor, but also they had evidence that they could have made smaller vials. It just was going to cost more. And additionally, this $500 million award equals out to about two weeks of the company's earnings. And was this a single plaintiff or a, a class of plaintiffs? Or? No. Um, all, of our, all of our situations involve, aren't, aren't class suits. This is the plaintiff who was the one that uh, contracted hepatitis C. And then his wife got a $1.8 million of the money was a loss consortium award uh, to his wife. You know, I'm a big believer in the jury system, but it, in punitive damages, I worry, and it's not really the jury's fault. And one, and I've I've argued this before. One of the problems with punitive damages is it's really criminal in nature. It's punitive. It's a punishment. And ordinarily, in that type of case, you, you can't win unless it's clear beyond a reasonable doubt. But in a civil case where punitives are allowed, it's just preponderance of the evidence. The second part is that there's no double jeopardy. So 
I have tried cases on behalf of drug companies where the first case I try, I win, no compensatory, no punitive. Second case, I try, I win, same result. Third case, I try, I lose, and I get hit for punitive damages. So each time, it becomes harder for the defendant to defend itself because the plaintiffs get smarter and smarter. And so the fact that you win once or twice does not preclude a possibility of the of of another smarter plaintiff with more information building on the first plaintiff to do this and, and so that's that's why the appellate courts tend to get more involved with big punitive damages in terms of trying to monitor them and keep them un, under control Rini, there is one case where uh, a jury handed a law firm a $103 million verdict against it for uh, working against a former client. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Yes, absolutely. So that's our number six verdict uh, against Baker and McKenzie, which, of course, is the world's largest law firm. Uh, and there, this involves uh, a businessman in Texas and his relation, the question of what the sort of attorney-client relationship was between this plaintiff and the attorneys and the law firm, uh, the law firm alleged that it had a very limited representation of this client in this oil drilling deal involving these two rigs. Uh, but there was a bunch of evidence that the plaintiffs put on for several years indicating uh, a broader relationship, sort of with the most inflammatory piece of evidence being a, a check for more than $7,000 written to the law firm uh, in this case. The sort of scandalous aspect from the plaintiff's perspective was that the another uh, individual, another businessman was involved here, and there was a, an allegation that this man, Reed Cagle, and the law firm were working together to basically bilk the businessman, Evans, from profits for these oil deals. So that's sort of the gist here. That's the one legal malpractice case this year, um, and it certainly is interesting that you bring it up because... We do often have uh, a legal malpractice case or a patent case where sort of a small-time person uh, argues that their patent was taken from a big, a big company. But really, if you look at this year, you're looking at uh, personal injury, wrongful deaths, and obviously, you know, almost a third of the cases in, in tobacco. So this was especially complicated. And, and again, it was the only legal malpractice case of the top 10 this year. Kevin, how do law firms deal with... Uh large verdicts like this, you know, obviously the partners are going to have to pony up some money, but um, how do they get in trouble in the first place? <laughs> well, several things. Um, for, first of all, our firm defends lawyers, and we have a number of cases. And over the years, we've seen a growth in the number of cases against lawyers. And so just for starters, lawyers are becoming more targeted, and, and in part they become more targeted because these verdicts that, that, like this verdict here uh, inspire others to spend the time and money against lawyers. One of the things that we see is jurors don't like lawyers who uh, violate their fiduciary obligations. And I think most jurors can put themselves in the position of somebody who's depending on a law firm to be honest and accurate and scrupulous. And, and so they hold lawyers to very high standard of care. And, and so um, the lawyers uh, have to hold themselves to very high standards. So, so what, Craig, you'll see in our firm and in other firms is a much, um, much more emphasis on client contacts, client controls, dealing with clients, using writings to to 
uh, confirm what's happening because sometimes the clients can't remember or don't understand, working harder to be better lawyers and, and better communicators with clients um, because you, you, because law fir- lawsuits against law firms are hugely disruptive, not only financially, but just the internal problems in law firms spend their time trying to defend these cases and trying to correct any faults that have been been occurring um, and and not really concentrating on practicing law as they should so it's a it's something that we notice and we take and we take great care to try to avoid well it's time for us to take a short break when we return we'll have more on lawyers USA's top 10 jury verdicts of 2010. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and wading through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, The mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important. With cloud-based software, you can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? 
It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are joined by Reedy Gertner, news editor of Lawyers USA, and attorney Kevin Dunn from the law office of Sedgwick, Dedert, Moran, and Arnold in San Francisco. Uh, Reedy, uh, three of the top 10 verdicts this year involved tobacco cases, and one of those uh came out of the state uh, where we're both located, Massachusetts, uh, $152 million verdict for the estate of a woman who was given free cigarettes uh, when she was younger. Can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Sure. Uh, so that was the actually the top verdict this year in, in, in 2010 in Massachusetts. Uh, it's also the first ever victory for an individual plaintiff over Lorillard Tobacco Company. Um, it's an interesting one because this woman, Marie Evans, was nine years old when she was being given free Newport cigarettes from a representative of Lorillard Tobacco Company on a playground um, near the housing project where she lived. And for the first several years, she traded them up to her sister and, and, and friends. And eventually, she started smoking when I believe she was around 13. Uh, what's, what's interesting is what this might well do is sort of open the door to other cases involving, uh, people who may have been given cigarettes at such a young age at a time when, you know, it's, first of all, it gives them a long lifespan in which to be smoking, but additionally, they aren't in a position to know, uh, whether there may be dangers of smoking. Uh, the other sort of interesting factor here, uh, we have $71 million in compensatory damages. 81 million in punitives, and the chance that the verdict might actually grow. There is a statutory claim under state law that uh, the behavior of Lorillard here breached the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Law, and that is still pending. So there may well be even a bigger verdict in this case, but of course not in 2010. So that could mean even treble damages then under the Consumer Protection Law. That's right. That's the that's the biggest that's number the number three verdict of the year across the board and um, especially interesting because of the the age at which um, Marie Evans was given cigarettes from the company. To me, the, the one of the interesting things about that particular case is that frequently punitive damages have not only have to do with who the defendant is and the culpability of the defendant, but also who the plaintiff is. I tried a tobacco case in Brooklyn before Judge Jack Weinstein, and the plaintiff in that case was Empire Blue Cross, and they were suing the tobacco industry to get back from the industry all of the money that that Blue Cross had paid for the treatment of tobacco-related illnesses, and that was $2.7 billion. And, And in that case, basically, they asked for $2.7 billion, a Brooklyn jury gave the Blue Cross zero against one of my clients, British American Tobacco, and $2.7 million against the other. So, so it, it, you, it's kind of interesting that, that a big corporate plaintiff would do worse against tobacco than an you know, underage child would do. And, and again, just kind of affirming when you're evaluating these things before you go to trial what the dangers are. 
Kevin, what have you seen in terms of the the the, the public reaction to these kinds of verdicts? Uh, is certainly we've seen a, a number of efforts over the years at, at at so-called tort reform or what others might call tort deform. Uh, is there is there a, a, a clamoring for that? Uh, does the clamor for that kind of continue in in some segments, um, or uh, do you see the public uh, uh, accepting uh, these large verdict awards? Well, I, they, I, <laughs> they seem to accept it if it's against a great big defendant like tobacco. Um, but but it, you know, in, in cocktail parties, I guess I go to more conservative cocktail parties. They're horrified by these verdicts. And when I go out and try cases in the what's called the Valley in in, San Fran, in California in Bakersfield and, and Modesto, those jurors will not give big verdicts. I just I was doing voir dire on a jury in Bakersfield, and I said to the jury, "Has anybody been seriously injured?" And no, 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 no. Then later on, one man in the back says, "Well, when you said seriously injured, he says I have an eye out, but I thought you were talking serious injuries, and that was my own fault." Well, that difference in, in where the person is and, and what type of background they have is so enormous in, in terms of what's going to happen in terms of the size of a verdict. So, so in San Francisco, juror, uh, lawyers know and, and their clients know that if you can get a case changed from venue in San Francisco to the Valley, the value of that case may go down as much as 75%. And that's true nationwide in terms of the judicial hellhole versus the, the 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 back roads and and some of the areas where people are much more conservative. Rini, do you talk to any of the lawyers that are involved with these cases when you interview them? Do you have any reaction on from them on any of these top 10? Uh I've talked to uh so I haven't personally talked to all of the ones in these cases, but we certainly all do talk to, you know, across our, our staff, we do talk to the, the lawyers here. And, you know, the we, we always uh, make an effort to interview both sides, as you may have seen if you read the issue sometimes and oftentimes um, the company or the defense the defense attorney doesn't call back. So we, we end up trying to make as balanced a story as possible and only having the option of speaking to the plaintiff's attorneys many of whom, you know, are passionately focused on exactly this exact area of cases. So, for example, uh, Attorney Eglett, who is in from the number one verdict, it, that was the first of, you know, 100 cases that are pending. He's already in trial on another one. And they do grow very well uh, versed in all of the documents associated with the cases and everything like that. Um you know, you'll find that the, the attorneys who handle the tobacco cases are similar, you know, similar to how uh, what Attorney Dunn is saying. You know, they, you, they're they experts in these areas and they continue to move forward. Uh, and if it does. It depends on the jury. They pay a lot of attention to the jury selection. Uh, there was definitely a, a discussion in one of these cases about the in the one involving the passenger van crash, which involved seven Mexican citizens as passengers. Um, it was an uh, basically an all Latino jury, and you'll also see there was a, um, there was one jury that was all African American. I mean, there's definitely an analysis that goes into the process of who should be on that jury, and that is ultimately, of course, affected by the venue. Um, the jury pool in the area is going to going to have an impact. In fact, with this one involving the hepatitis C case, um, a lot of the individuals there even know those clinics, and so. There, there's a lot of issues that the, the uh, attorneys deal with from a strategy standpoint, and how are we going to present this case, 
and and who is are is the are the best jurors to whom to present it. We we both sides in these large cases use jury consultants, and both sides use focus groups. I mean, it's becoming quite sophisticated, and when you use a focus group, you can you can see they 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 literally give them a. a a little monitor so you can measure their reactions to arguments and you can see the arguments that resonate and the arguments that don't work and both sides are doing that so the the adversary system is very sophisticated in terms of each side presenting the best case they can possibly present well with that we've just about reached the end of our program and it's time to wrap up get your final thoughts as well as uh, your contact information so Rini, let's start with you well, thank you so much for, for having me and for your interest in Lawyers USA's uh, Top 10 Jury Verdicts of 2010. Uh, it was certainly an interesting year, and, and again, you know, f- with a, a big focus, as, as is usual, on uh, negligence cases involving wrongful death, um, tobacco litigation that we're going to continue to watch throughout the year to come. And uh, we certainly look forward to reviewing uh, next year's verdicts as they come down. And, and also, at, at the end of the year, we always take a look um, to see what happened to the top verdicts of the prior year. It's our where are they now feature. So we'll be following these verdicts for any changes or appeals. And if anybody would like to uh, talk more with me about our top 10, um, you can check out the feature on our website at lawyersusaonline.com. Or please feel free to email me at Reni, that's R-E-N-I dot Gertner, G-E-R-T-N-E-R, at LawyersUSAOnline.com. So thanks again. Thank you. And Kevin, your final thoughts and your contact information, please. Well, uh, first of all, I think reviewing the top 10 verdicts is a great way to kind of monitor the culture of this country and, and, and the the, the history of this country and the sensitivity of the people in the country. I was a history history major, and that's one of the reasons I got into law because it has such relevance to culture and and history. Um, I am I I have a office in San Francisco. I practice all over the country. I travel all over the country and try cases all over the country. And if you want to uh, reach me, my best way is my um, my email, which is Kevin dot done d u n n e at s d m a dot com and even if you don't have a case I'd love to talk to you great well thank you very much Kevin we really appreciate it and Rini thank you as well for being on the show today and uh, Bob that pretty much wraps it up for this week's lawyer to lawyer that does let me uh, just add my thanks to Kevin and Rini for taking the time to be with us and share their Insights on this topic. Uh, great show, and uh, thanks to both of you. Loved it. Great. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, remember you can get CLE credits for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. And of course, we're in the uh, podcast library on iTunes, and all of our programs are on legaltalknetwork.com, where you can find us going back uh, five plus years there. So That's check exactly out the archives. Right. And then we're looking forward to another five years. So we'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you next week. See you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.